0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Luke chapter 11 verses 1 to 3, it's in the handout and it's also... Uh, page 843 of the pew bibles luke chapter 11 verses 1 to 13 one day jesus was praying in a certain place when he finished one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray just as john taught his disciples he said to them when you pray say father hallowed be your name Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers,
1: Well, hi again. As Matt said, we are in the middle of a series on prayer and the one who hears it. Uh, We're taking some time to think about not just prayer and the dynamics of prayer, but the one we pray to, and uh, to kind of remind ourselves of his reality and goodness, and we're we're kind of continuing that theme uh, tonight. Um, I might pray again. And then we'll we'll dive into this. Um, Lord, we come before you always as beggars, uh, in need of your help, your guidance, in need of you to reshape our faulty thought and rebuild our broken hearts. And we ask for these mercies again by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to start by asking... What's the trick to prayer? What's the best technique? I want to show you a five-step process that one organization I found online puts puts out there. But before I show you, I want to um, just make it clear that actually this is is not Christianity. Um, You'll see as we go through, there's some slightly or extremely dodgy theological kind of claims, but this is out there, and this is a serious kind of take on prayer. Um, there are some things, actually, as we go through, you'll see that are kind of lifted from the Bible, Christian ideas repurposed into a worldview that is actually pantheism. Uh, it's a spiritual perspective where everything is divine, and, and this is a perspective on prayer that is, is definitely growing in the world today. So see what you make of this. Here's one take on prayer. Uh, yeah, from the internet. In prayer, we shift our attention away from human circumstances and focus on our spiritual nature, our oneness with the infinite. And there's five steps. Relaxation, concentration, meditation, realisation, and appreciation. And here they are. First, relaxation. Breathe deeply and focus within. Become willing to know a truth that frees you from all concerns. How to very useful kind of how-to section. Take deep conscious breaths. As you relax your body and release busy thoughts, feel your heart opening up. I would quite like to do that. Step two, concentration. Recognize the power of God as life, love, wisdom, and ever-present good. How-to. Center your thoughts on the ever-present energy of God in your life. You might want to, this gets a bit dodgy. You might want to inhale, God is, and exhale, I am. Step three, meditation. In silent reflection, see that the power of God is the same power within you, your divine potential. How to, in silence, experience the power of your own divinity, knowing you share all the attributes of God, love, strength, wisdom. I just came from home with my small children, and it was The idea that I would share the attribute of omnipotence is uh, very odd to me, to think. But anyway, uh, or omniscience, or any of them, really. Step four, though, realisation. Know that you have the power to be, to do, to have, and to allow the good you desire. This is a bit Oprah, this step, I think. Feel a click as everything falls into place and you know all is well regardless of outer, outer circumstances, it is done. That last line, it is done, I think is actually a nod of the head to the last words of Jesus on the cross when he says it is finished. Anyway, step five, appreciation. Grateful for your growing spiritual awareness, you are empowered to live fully now and into a fulfilling future. How to empower your life with every expression of gratitude. Now, as I said, this is... This is not Christianity, but it is, it's drawing on some Christian ideas, and it is trying to talk about prayer. They describe it as prayer, and I wonder what you make of it. Um, I think there's a kind of appeal to this, actually. It's nice to have some instructions, don't you think? It's nice to have a kind of method, a technique for, for something really kind of enriching and empowering. A lot of this also, to be honest, sounds quite pleasant, steadying, peaceful. It would be nice, wouldn't it, even if we totally disagree with, with that, which I mostly do, it would be nice to be taught a technique to pray in a really satisfying way, to find some kind of trick or method that would help us be deep, spiritual, prayerful people. And there are much more Christian ways of looking for this. There are all sorts of guidances and methods on how to pray based on the Christian tradition and ideas. But when prayer is talked about in the Christian tradition and in kind of the the, Christian practices and so on, actually what I think you find is that the emphasis tends to shift. The emphasis shifts away from methods and techniques and towards the one who hears prayer and what it is we might say to him. Christian teaching about prayer tends to be much less about technique and much more about, well, God. And one of the reasons for this, I think, is the way Jesus responded when the disciples asked him to teach them to pray. This is our passage for this week, which was just read, um, and I'd love you to have it open before you. If you didn't get a sheet on the way in, as Maxon said, it's on page 843 of the Bibles, or you can just look it up on your phone. Um, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Uh, like last week, I'm going to first kind of run through the passage and have a think about it, and then at the end, I'm going to try and ask some more reflective questions about what it means for us. So, first, then, let's have a look at this, this moment where the disciples say to Jesus, Teach us to, play, to pray. Okay, they're, they're watching Jesus praying. Um, Jesus did this often, and it obviously made a real impression on them. He was, he was just someone who, who really knew how to pray, he seemed to have a real knack for it, and so the disciples ask him to teach them. Lord, they say, Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, we don't know much about what John the Baptist taught his disciples, uh, but it seems like it must have just been a normal thing for a Jewish rabbi to do, to, to instruct his disciples in practices of prayer. And so the disciples, they want to soak up some wisdom from their teacher. They want to pray like Jesus. They want to know the secret to praying with the kind of power and clarity that he seems to be able to. And so Jesus teaches them. He gives them an a- Sometimes Jesus gives t- terrible answers to the disciples' questions when they ask them. Well, not. I mean, I think they're actually good answers, but they're not what they're expecting at all. And I think it's a bit like this, but at first it seems like he just gives them a straight answer. But it's not the answer they were expecting in a lot of ways as you get into it. And as it, 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 it fell on them, I think it must have felt a bit odd. So he does two things. First, he gives them a prayer. He says, okay, say this. And then second, he gives them a bunch of instructions about prayer, uh, some of which seem really basic, simple. But as we'll see, there's a lot more to them, I think. So first then, let's have a look at this prayer. When you pray, says Jesus, say this. The way he puts it there is, is really blunt, right? just like it is in English. When you pray, say I think it quite clearly implies that he wanted his disciples at least to try saying these actual words. Now, the words are what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Um, we'll say a version of it later on. It's from Matthew's Gospel, but Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is a little bit different. It's a bit shorter, actually. Why is that? It could be because this is a prayer that Jesus taught actually lots of times throughout his ministry, uh, or it could be that they've just been remembered in you know two slightly different forms have been remembered or it could be that Matthew's version has has been put down in, in the kind of the most sayable way it was taught. Either way, the basic structure and content of this prayer is the same. Now we're going to have a whole sermon on the Lord's Prayer in a couple of weeks' time uh, because it needs more attention. There is a lot to talk about in this prayer, but I will say in passing, Um, that I don't think that line, lead us not into temptation, I don't think it is in conflict with what we saw James say last week. If you weren't here, don't worry about this. It's from James chapter 1. But in the passage we looked at last week, we saw James say, God does not tempt anyone. But I don't think there's actually a clash here. The prayer for God to not lead us into temptation, that's a prayer for God to save and to spare from the temptations that we can and do face because we're messed up people in a messed up world. It's not that Jesus is saying God might or might not cause temptation, so ask him not to. It's that we're asking God to spare us from those paths, those dangers as we walk through the world. But back to the main track. For now, what I want to do is focus our attention simply on the fact that Jesus responded to the disciples, firstly, by giving them a prayer. Because he could have done things differently, right? He could have given them a set of principles. Or he could have given them a technique or a method. He could have said, well, first you want to find the right spot, the right place, and then here's the body position I think is most helpful. Like all sorts of things like that, but he didn't. He says, say this. Why? Well, what this does is it focuses our attention straight away on prayer as speech speech to God as Father. There's nothing about technique in it or about method. There are just words to say and just to to get on with them straight away. Right from the get-go, Jesus says, speak. I don't think it matters whether it's spoken aloud or in the head, but it's verbal in some way. These are words. It shows us that prayer is not just meditation. It's speech. It's speech to another who hears. By giving the disciples a prayer, what Jesus does is he immediately focuses their attention on the one who hears and the, the fact that they can actually, things that they can actually say to him, to God, the Father, his name to be hallowed and so on. It's like Jesus wants to cut off any messing about, any talk about preparation, process, technique. He said, you want to know how to pray? All right, say this, get going. Now, the reason that Jesus... Responds like this, I think, comes out in the teaching that follows. I think they're really linked in Luke's gospel. What Jesus does here is he talks to the disciples then about two mistakes that can be made in approaching prayer. And these mistakes come from forgetting exactly the things that the Lord's Prayer is designed to remind of. First, it comes from forgetting that prayer is actually about asking, it's actually about speech. And second, these mistakes are about forgetting that there is a real person to whom prayer is directed. Uh, So let's go through these mistakes one at a time uh, and see what I mean. So the first mistake is in verses 5 to 10. And we're going to read that again. He explains it first with a parable. But this is the mistake of forgetting that prayer is actually about asking. It's actually about bothering to speak. He will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This is meant to be a funny story. Basically, his point is, even a grumpy person in the middle of the night will eventually answer if someone is persistent. There's a parable about living in the rectory. There's also my sister's approach to phone calls. And what's the point of this? What, okay, grumpy person in the middle of the night. Well, his point is, if that is true of a grumpy person in the middle of the night, how much more is that true of God, who never slumbers or sleeps, as the psalm says? The logic is the logic of how much more. If that is true here, then it's definitely going to be true there. And so Jesus draws the conclusion in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The first mistake you have to avoid, says Jesus, is simply the mistake of not speaking, of not asking. Now, here before we move on, I just want to register a bit of a challenge. Are you actually asking? Are you actually speaking? As I said, not necessarily out loud, though probably out loud is the most helpful, but verbally, articulating words, requests. Are you, are you actually bringing your requests to God, seeking him, asking persistently, almost, almost shamelessly? Because to ask is not the same as to meditate or to want. We all want things. We all have wishes, desires, hopes. But the question is, are we actually asking God about them? Are we taking time to speak to him about them? Are we bringing our requests, knocking on the door? Now the answer might be yes, and if the answer is yes, there is more to say about that and I'm going to come back to it. But sometimes I think the answer is no, I think we just float along kind of just wishing things, having desires, but not actually turning them into prayers. We're not making the effort to to turn our desires and anxieties into requests, and if that's the case, can I urge you to hear Jesus' words, ask. And he says, here are some words, start with them. But then Jesus turns to another mistake in verses 11 to 13, and here the mistake is about forgetting who it is that's that's listening. here again, the logic follows, the logic is a logic of how much more. If that's true here, then it's definitely true there. Basically, what Jesus says here is and I'm going to sum this up in a deliberately provocative way. Basically, Jesus says, Come on, guys, God is not a complete bastard. Have a look at it from verse 11. Which of you fathers, if, you, if, if, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see how the logic works here? Some of you are fathers, says Jesus. Uh, would any of you do this? Right? Your son asks you for an egg, and you think, "Ha I will give him a poisonous animal, a scorpion. You wouldn't do that. If you Muppets can get that right, says Jesus, how much more, there's that logic again, how much more can you trust that God will get that right? Your Father in heaven. He is, you see, he is a real person, like, and he's saying you, you've forgotten that he's a real person who at, meets at least the minimum standards of kind of human politeness, right? That's all you need to know in order to ask him. But in fact, he's much better, much more reliable, more loving than any of us. Now, I do need to make an important pause here. It should be acknowledged with the deepest sadness that there are fathers who do not meet even this standard. There are fathers who are callous and deliberately cruel fathers of whom this image of giving a snake when a fish has been asked for feels horribly appropriate. I'm sure Jesus actually knew this then. He definitely knows it now, and he hates it. We need to acknowledge this, though, because it it reminds us of how spiritually damaging it is for fathers to fail to care for their children. Uh, whether we like it or not, there just is an analogy between fatherhood and God's relationship with us. God has chosen for that relationship of fatherhood to echo in some faint way, at least, his own being as father. And that means what that means, number one, is that a special, terrifying responsibility is placed upon father's. Fathers are called to bear a name that belongs also and belongs first to God. And that adds a special weight to how they care for their children. Now, not many people here are fathers, but some of you are, and some of you maybe one day hear this. I wish everyone here had a really wonderful father. But I know that's not true. All fathers fail in some ways, and some fathers fail abominably. And if your father failed you in ways that have been spiritually damaging and that have even made God's name as father hard to bear, then I grieve with you. But it's important to be clear as well that the point of this analogy is not for it to work in the same way in both directions. Let me explain a bit. You see, the analogy between God as father and human fathers, it it places a special responsibility on human fathers, but it, it doesn't mean, it never means, that the way to understand God is by imagining a bigger version of our fathers. No. Although fatherhood echoes it in some way, human fatherhood is not a reliable guide to God's fatherhood because God's fatherhood is first and infinitely more and very unlike our fatherhood. And so the knowledge that God is father, as Jesus calls him here, it can be, it should be actually a comfort, a blessing in the face of the failure of our human fathers, And you know, this is actually Jesus' point, right? Because the main thing Jesus wants to stress here is actually the unlikeness between you fathers who he's talking to and God as father. His point is that God is not like us. If you, he says, who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, because he's so much better so different to you. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? If even the most ordinary human fathers mostly get this right, how much more will God, your Father in heaven, who is not subject to our weaknesses and failures? But you see, the second mistake Jesus seems to think might be getting in the way of the disciples' prayer is the mistake of forgetting that their prayers have a real hearer, a real personal hearer, and a hearer who is not just the universe, or a force, or a dimension of existence. No, he's personal. See, that's what the analogy of God as father, that's what it does. It reminds us that God's reality is personal. Right? God is at least but more personal than, than all of us and our human fathers. And Jesus wants to say, remember that you're praying to a, a real father who loves you. And he's not just some random jerk who's hopeless, more hopeless than you. He's good. And so if even you guys know how to respond to your children's requests, how much more does he but I'm sure you didn't miss the twist at the end. Did you miss it? That twist at the end. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says. We expect Jesus to say something like, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Or how much more will he give you what you require? And he does say something like that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 7. But here in Luke, Jesus says something quite unexpected. He says, how much more will your Father in heaven give Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The Holy Spirit, why does Jesus say that? And what's going on? Well, first, let's register what it means for Jesus to say this. The Holy Spirit is simply God. The mighty, perfect, holy Lord in his personal existence as living spirit, breathing life into creation at every moment and breathing the new life of Christ's resurrection from the dead into those who put their trust in Jesus. In the creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit is called the Lord, the giver of life. The Spirit is the life of God that gives life to the world. And so the Spirit is not, not a consolation prize. When Jesus says that God the Father will give the Holy Spirit, he is not saying, look, we had some good gifts, but actually they went to other people, Um, but we actually have some Holy Spirit left, and we're going to give that to everybody who also ran. Now, I joke, but goodness, don't we sometimes... Think like this when you heard this verse. How much more will he give the Holy Spirit? Did you give a little sigh? Ah, the Spirit, lame, not lame, not lame. This is God's best gift, this is Himself, this is the life and power of eternity. Breathe into our hearts and minds. And that is what Jesus says that God the Father will give to those who ask him. It is incredible, and it's even more incredible if we take a moment to remember what it means for God to give the Spirit, what it meant. Because the Spirit, the Bible, the New Testament makes it very clear that the Spirit is only given to us because of the the death and resurrection of the Son of God. The Bible tells us that the Spirit could only be poured out upon us, given to us to give new life, because Jesus Christ went through hell on the cross and was raised from the dead, righteous and given the name above every name, and exalted to the right hand of God. You know, we see this right at the beginning of the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit first comes upon the first Christians, like a flood of fire, Peter, the apostle, stands up and he says this. He says, Exalted to the right hand of God, friends, he, that's Jesus, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is the gift of the risen Jesus who went through death and rose to life to give it. Do you see then what this unexpected comment of Jesus, that our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, do you see what it actually means? It is nothing less than the promise of God to give salvation through the passion and victory of his Son. And I think that is the key to beginning to know what to say about the painful question that will have come to mind for many people as we read this passage. The question of unanswered prayer, of requests made repeatedly, in earnest, with tears and pain, yet seemingly without response, requests for things that are are good, actually, for husband or a wife, for a baby, for the end of an illness, for work, for better friends, for freedom from mental anguish, for a marriage not to fail, for a child to recover. This question is not a question of the mistakes Jesus talks about here. We're not talking about failure to ask, or about failure to remember that we're asking a real person. We're talking about prayers prayed persistently to an an apparently silent and uncaring father. But what we must see, at least, is that these prayers have not gone unanswered. The Father has not been indifferent. He has given, and He still gives, His best gift to you. In response, He has given His Son to stand in your place, take your sin upon Himself and bury it, so that He could rise to new life and pour out upon you into your heart and mind and spirit, his own spirit, his presence and life and sacred goodness calling you to and preparing you for eternal life and for a kingdom, the glory of which will make everything now feel like what Paul calls a light momentary trouble. Why couldn't he just give you what you asked for? I don't know. We don't know. There is always some mystery with prayer and with God's ways with us. There is often pain and confusion. The same was true for Jesus himself, as we will remember next week. He didn't get everything he asked for. The same was true for the Apostle Paul, who tells us how he asked God over and over for a difficulty to be removed, but was only assured that God's grace would be enough for him. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to look at it. We don't know why God withholds some gifts that he seems like he could give. But we do know that what he does, he does as a good father, who loves us beyond imagining, And we know that because he has given us, and he gives us still, his best and most perfect gift. Prayer is not about method or technique. There is no trick to prayer. Or rather, the trick to prayer is just God. And what we need to learn to pray is to have our eyes turned not towards ourselves and what we're doing, but towards the Lord and to the gifts that he wants to give and that we most need. This is what the Lord's Prayer is designed to do, actually. It's why we say it as Jesus told us to. It's designed to decenter ourselves and put at the center the one who hears and his purposes, It teaches us to ask for the Holy Spirit and to learn to praise God and to love him and to seek his transforming love in our lives. And the one who hears these prayers, he is not lazy or careless or powerless. He is not distracted or inattentive. He is our Father in heaven. And when we ask him, he gives. He gives his best gift his own spirit poured out by his risen son, filling us up with the life that fills eternity. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, ask and that will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Amen.